Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Guys, um, I actually got a couple other things that I need passed, and since our ushers are busy, can I steal a couple of good-looking young guys to come meet Heath Brothers, maybe? Sorry, Carrie. Sorry. It's not that you're not good looking, it's just that you're not so young. <laughs> just kidding. Um, can you guys just pass those out, go down the rows, and if people need writing utensils. What they're passing out, guys, is it's basically a rough outline of what we're going to look at today. And there's some blanks in there. Uh, but the reason I, I put this together for us is because as a church, we don't come here just, as Johnny was saying almost, to have a nice time, to, to celebrate, to sing. We come here also to engage with God's Word. And, and we don't want to hear God's Word and walk out and forget what happened and let it pass and act like nothing's, nothing's changed, act like God's Word isn't important. And so my hopes is that this is a way for us to further engage with God's Word so that you have something tangible in your hand to walk away with as we are walking through this parable in Luke to be able to write things down, write down questions, points, comments, so that we can engage with God's Word and really tackle it together. What is God saying to us as individuals and to us as a church? So you got that. Um, If you need writing or any sort of writing utensil, just let Melios know and he'll get you hooked up with that. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word and the gift of your church. Lord, we thank you that you are the unrivaled living God who still speaks and acts and works today. Thank you, Lord, that you are sanctifying us, that you are sanctifying your church, your bride, and making us holy and and empowering us to live lives that honor you and to take the gospel to all nations. Lord, we love you. As we hear your word, help us to respond in faith and submission and just to recognize it as a word from you, our, our Savior and our Lord, and our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys ever, have you ever been in or seen one of those situations where someone gets really excited about something and then realizes they totally misunderstood and it's really awkward? Mindy and I were watching a movie recently and there was this guy who'd won a couple of awards there's this guy who won a couple of awards, and he was up to win it again, and he thought for sure he had it. And so he's at the awards ceremony, it's him versus one other guy, and the guy says, they, they give the announcement and open the envelope, and he jumps up, and he's all excited, kisses his date, runs upstage, starts a speech, and everyone's dead quiet. And then he looks over, and there's the screen, and the other guy won. And it's just like, you can hear a pin drop. And we've all been in situations kind of like that. Um, And I I bring that up because what we're going to see here, the setting's actually kind of similar to that. You remember if you were here last week, Johnny talked in Luke 19 about Jesus and Zacchaeus. Um, We all know he was a wee little man, uh, but he was also a man who this wonderful miracle of salvation happened when he encountered Jesus. And he responded with this over-the-top generosity, giving away lavish amounts and, and possibly giving it all away, as Johnny talked about last week, with the, the amounts and how he was repaying those that he cheated fourfold and things. So we have this awesome interaction with Zacchaeus, and then on the tail end of it, 
we have this parable of the ten minus. And this is Luke 19, starts in verse 11. And before we start reading, I just want to highlight two things. And you'll see them both there in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear. What we've got there is Luke's reason for why Jesus tells this parable at this point in his journey, in his mission to Jerusalem. And you'll see on your sheets there, two reasons. Number one, the crowd was confused. This is just like in that that example in the movie, The Awkwardness. The crowd was confused because they had a wrong expectation or a wrong understanding, and they had the wrong timing down. And this is what I mean by that. The crowd is all excited, Luke says, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately and because they were near Jerusalem. So that's, that's the timing and the misunderstanding. As Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, the, the capital where the crowd thought it was all going to kick off, the crowd, the, the common expectation of the kingdom of God and the Messiah was that this guy was going to come in. Here, here's a, what one scholar says. He says it's a charismatic descendant of David who the Jews of the Roman times thought would be raised up by God to break the yoke of the heathen and to reign over a restored kingdom of Israel. He would bring about the idyllic blessings of the prophets, defeat enemies, restore all exiled Israelites, reconcile them to God. Ultimately, he would bring about physical and spiritual bliss. You hear that and you understand why this crowd would be pumped up. Uh, They've been waiting. David's dynasty ended 500-something years before Jesus came. And so this crowd has been waiting a long, long time for this Messiah to come. And they think that in Jesus, they've got him. And they were right. But they misunderstood their expectation of what Jesus was going to do was wrong. Um, One way to to really understand the the tension that was in the air, uh, I think about when Devin Hester joined the Bears. This was 2006, I think. And if, if you're a Bears fan, you know Hester's something special. And especially that first year, those of you who don't know, Devin Hester is the all-time leading kick returner, punt returner, the most touchdowns in his career um, that the NFL has ever had. Uh, but what that meant is that because he was so special and so dynamic, every time there was about to be a kick in the game, it was like everyone just took a deep breath and was on the edge of their seats because he might run another one back. He might, he might go all the way again. It, it was that exciting, and there was that much tension. Multiply that times 500 years, and, and you've got something a little similar to what the Israelites are thinking right now, is he's finally here. We're, we're going to get the kingdom. He, he's going to do it. So they're excited, but they're confused. Uh, now, before we actually read the parable Jesus tells, we need to really just touch the basics about how we approach parables, because they're a really unique uh, type of, of reading we have in Scripture. So, two, two things about parables. Number one, when we're reading parables, we don't read everything as symbolic. And personally, for me, that is the hardest part. Uh, and I think for a lot of us, we, we tend to lean that way. We read a parable, and we see all these symbols. And it, it's funny, because it's kind of ridiculous. To, to read something that's not symbolic as symbolic leads to all sorts of problems. Uh, and, and we have that nowadays in pretty much every area of life. As I was doing some research, um, did you realize there's a theory out there that the new Batman movies, uh, Batman is actually representative of George W. Bush, um, and the Joker is terrorism. 
uh, people get these crazy conspiracy theories when they start to see symbols everywhere that they aren't. Um, and that, that's not just with a movie or anything. We do that with Scripture, too. If we start to approach it and we say, okay, so the ten minus, so the one minus means this, and the second servant represents this, and this is what happens here. If, if we read symbols where there's not symbols, massive problem, massive misinterpretation. So we don't read everything as symbolic. Number two, we do read everything as the original audience. And that really ties into number one. Remember, Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd of Jewish people 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. We are a group of middle-class people sitting in the suburbs in Munster, Indiana. We are a massively different crowd. And so even if there were certain things that kind of went without saying in in Jesus' society, things that were implied just by by word pictures, we're probably totally going to miss them in our first reading because we come completely different context, completely different background. So what that means is that we have to do a lot of hard work to get ourselves into those people's shoes. We have to try to leave our own worldview and, and hear this story, read this story, like a Jew from 2,000 years ago would have read it or heard it. And so that takes a lot of hard work, but it's really important or else we risk misinterpreting what Jesus is saying. Um, One other important thing before we read the parable is the story of Archelaus. Uh, And what this is is really the historical context of what Jesus is saying. He's, He's just been in Jericho or with Zacchaeus. He may... Right now, as he tells the story, he might be in Jericho. He might have just left. But he's in the vicinity of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, If you remember the Christmas story, Herod was the king. The wise men came to him. Um, Eventually, Herod had all the the babies in Jerusalem slaughtered, all the boys, because he thought it was a threat to his throne. So Herod was really this terror. Um, He was a horrible king, um, brutal. The people hated him. When Jesus, right after Jesus was born, Herod died, and Herod left a will that said his son Archelaus was to be king. Um, Herod died in Jericho, right where this is all going down. What happened, history tells us, is that Archelaus, dad died, there was a week of mourning, uh, but Archelaus began to speak very kindly to the crowds and, and to promise them what they wanted and, and all these things. So the crowds loved Archelaus. They were ready to crown him in an instant. But what, what happened is Archelaus deferred the crown until the higher authority would confirm it. Archelaus said, I'm not going to take the crown. Don't call me the king until I go to Caesar and Caesar says I'm the rightful king. Because he risked a lot of shame. If, if he took the crown and, and claimed to be king and Caesar said, nah, we're going to go with that guy instead, Archelaus would be totally ashamed, totally humiliated. And so he deferred the crown. He, he said, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to go to Caesar in Rome, and I'm going to get his confirmation that this will is accurate and that this is what's going to happen. Uh, But before Archelaus left, there were some problems. Uh, The Jews wanted something. Archelaus wouldn't do it. The Jews started a mob. And so it ended up that Archelaus sent his Roman soldiers, even though he wasn't the king, and 3,000 Jews were slaughtered. So now the Jews hate Archelaus. Um, Archelaus leaves. His half-brother Antipas also leaves. They both go to Rome because Antipas, in Herod's first will, was supposed to be king. 
Archelaus II, Will says he's supposed to be king. So there's this big family conflict, and there's, as this is going on, there's rebellion in Jerusalem and Judea, all sorts of chaos and carnage. Um, the Jews send a delegation of 50 Jews to go and argue against Archelaus. Um, the Jews wanted a Roman governor. They didn't want a king. They wanted Rome to put someone in place. Um, and so this is the historical background. What ended up happening is Caesar said, Archelaus, you will be king of half the country, uh, Judea and some other areas. You see in Matthew 2 that's mentioned. Um, Antipas, you will be king of a quarter of the country. Uh, they're half-brothers. Uh, you'll have Galilee and another region. And then a third half-brother, Philip, was king of a couple more regions, the other quarter of the country. Um, history also says Archelaus reigned for about 10 years, was horrible, so that both his half-brothers and the Jews went back to Caesar and said, get rid of this guy. So he was kicked out, banished, um, and they put a Roman governor in place. And that ultimately led to Pontius Pilate, who we're all pretty familiar with from the story of the crucifixion. But that's the historical background. And now as we read the parable, you'll see all sorts of connections to that story of Archelaus. Um, So let's read Luke 19, start in verse 12. He said, therefore, it's Jesus, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second one came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So that's the story that Jesus tells to this crowd that is excited, anticipating the kingdom of God to come and the Romans to get kicked out. Jesus tells the story. Before we talk about why and and what Jesus means, there's one important um, false understanding we need to mention, um, and that's this. The understanding that Jesus is saying he wants us to invest our money. Um, And that's dangerous because it's a half-truth. That that statement is true. Jesus does want us to invest our money. But it's dangerous because if, if we end there, we really limit the implications of what Jesus is saying here with the parable. Um, and so, so that's dangerous. We need to avoid doing that. Um, in, in our society, that's hard because 
here in America, we love capitalism, we love finances and investments and all these things, but if we're not careful, we can almost make Jesus a financial advisor and, and forget that he is our Lord who owns everything, has given us everything, and that he is our Savior. And so he has complete authority to dictate what we do with all of our lives. Um, and so that's why it's dangerous. <clears throat> but what is the right understanding here? Well, remember, parables are not all sorts of crazy symbolism. They're not allegories. They tend to have one or two main points, big takeaways. Here's what I would suggest it is. Servants must be faithful when the master is absent because the master's coming back. You see that principle kind of in verse 26 when the master says, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, what he has will be taken away. And so servants must be faithful when the master's away because he's coming back. And that, that's important that he's coming back because that means we will be held to account. We will be judged based on our faithfulness or our lack of faithfulness. So that, if that's the big takeaway, then what's that mean? What's the implications of this parable? Uh, well, the crowd here has no idea what's really about to happen at Jerusalem. They have no idea Jesus is going to die, he's going to be buried for three days, he's going to rise from the dead and then ascend to heaven to be by the Father's side. They've got no idea, and we know that because... Just the chapter before in Luke 18, Jesus told the apostles again, or the disciples, he said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die, buried, raised. Even the disciples don't get it. His closest friends don't get it. It's hidden from them, Luke tells us. So these crowds don't have any idea. What Jesus is doing here is he's preparing his servants for what's about to come. They don't, they don't know what it is, but he's preparing them ahead of time. What that means is that in hindsight, this parable is going to make a lot more sense to them. Jesus is it's probably like a couple months between this point and the point where Jesus ascends to the Father. So two, three months down the road, they'll look back to the story and they'll say, oh, that's, that's what he meant. That's the full implications of it. But at this point, they would understand this, this idea of a servant should be faithful. They would still nod and say, yeah, that's right, he should be, because the master's going to hold him to account. Uh, but what this means is, is that this principle is what transcends time and space and, and applies to us today. So we don't keep looking for crazy um, symbols in there, and we don't start comparing the symbols to things in our society. We take this principle of a servant ought to be faithful to his master, and we cross it over to us today, and say, what does that mean for us here today? Now, in saying that, other parts of the parable might still ring true, but we have to avoid reading into it. And so we know from the rest of the biblical witness, we know that Jesus will come back, and his followers will be rewarded. His, his enemies will be slaughtered and judged for their unbelief and for their rebellion against him. We know that his servants will be rewarded because of his grace, because they have turned to him and received the gospel and accept, or responded to him and, and proclaimed him as Lord and Savior. We know that. But we can't, with our knowledge 2,000 years later, look back and say that's what they would have heard because the crowd has no idea Jesus is about to die. So this begs the question. If we, as Jesus' servants, are to be faithful in his absence... What are we to be faithful to? Because reality is, you can't just be faithful. 
you can't be faithful in a vacuum. If I say Johnny is faithful, I mean Johnny's faithful to something. He's faithful to Michelle. He's faithful to the church. He's faithful to the bears. Whatever. It's always faithful to something. You can only be faithful in relation to something else. So as Christ's servants, what are we to be faithful to? This is, this is it. This is, this is the huge truth, guys. What this means is that the mission of Christ becomes the mission of His servants. And, and here's why I say this. <clears throat> We're all familiar with this idea of, of stewardship or of, of letting someone else participate in our mission. Uh, just this past week, I was near a Trader Joe's, and I knew that Mindy wanted something from Trader Joe's, so I texted her, said, what do you want? She sent it back. Went inside Trader Joe's. Um, right inside the door, there were these pretty flowers. And I was like, oh, I should buy many flowers because Friday's our, our five-month anniversary of getting married. Uh, technically, it's not an anniversary, but you know what I mean. Um, and so I stood there for 10 minutes picking out what fl- flowers would be best. Uh, and then I was hungry. So I went back to the deli part to get some food. Uh, it turned out that it wasn't until I was standing in line I remembered, oh yeah, Mindy wanted something. Uh, so what, I say that because that is an example of poor stewardship. That is an example of failing the mission. If I had walked out of that store without the sunflower seeds I think she wanted, whatever, that would have been a really bad move as a husband. Uh, I would have felt really foolish. But it also would be, it'd be poor stewardship. I'd been entrusted to do something, and I'd failed to do it because I got sidetracked. I did other good things. I, I bought the girl flowers, but I, I failed in the ultimate mission. Perfect example of what, what I mean here. The mission of Christ becomes the mission of his servants. Notice three things here. Luke 19.10, just before this parable. It, just ending the, the story with Zacchaeus, Jesus gives his mission statement. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So Jesus gives his mission, and then he tells this parable about being faithful while the Master's away. Then, you don't have to flip there with me, but Luke 24, this is post-cross, post-grave, post-resurrection, just before the ascension, um, verse 44 to 49, it's, it's his last time with the disciples. Jesus says this, um, verse 45, chapter 24. He opened their minds to understand, understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of, of these things. A couple verses later, Jesus ascends and he's gone. If you notice there, though, the mission's only half done at this point when Jesus leaves. The Son of Man has died. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But repentance and forgiveness of of sins has not been proclaimed in his name to all nations. He's leaving that mission for his followers and he reminds them of their mission, their charge, just before he ascends to the Father. He's saying, don't forget Here's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to go up there. Remember, he says, I'll, I'll send the Holy Spirit, which will empower you to be witnesses. But I'm, I'm going. Here's your charge. 
again in Acts 1, don't need to flip there, but just before Jesus leaves, this is the same author, it's Luke again, Acts 1, 6-9, Jesus again reminds the disciples of his mission. He says, you will, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to the Father. We know as we read through Acts, the Holy Spirit comes a few days later, church is birthed, witness of Christ goes forward, gospel starts spreading across Jerusalem, out to all nations. But the reality is that mission has still not been accomplished. So the charge still binds us as Jesus' followers. And this is really the full breadth of this, this parable's application, is that followers of Christ are saved for a purpose. And if we, we know this, guys, if we think about this. What's the purpose? Why are we here on earth? I'd say it's twofold. It's to enjoy God in the spread of the gospel. And it's got to be both of those things, in the enjoying and the spreading of the gospel. Because if we're just here to enjoy God, as soon as we're saved, God could suck us up to heaven and we'll enjoy him even more there without sin and sorrow and pain. We're here for both. We're here to enjoy God as we participate in what he's called us to do as individuals and as his church. And so it's both of these, this twofold thing. And guys, this is so huge because someday the king is going to come back and we will stand to account before him. And in that day, I don't want to stand there and say, Lord, you left me with one mission. You, you, you saved me for a purpose. You said to make disciples of all nations. And I failed. And, and this is the thing, guys. We can have a nice Sunday church service. We can have the Maples family come up and pray for Finland. We can sing nice songs and do all these things. But if this mission doesn't happen, if the gospel doesn't go to all nations and all people, we fail in the mission. And someday when the Master comes back, we'll stand before Him and say, Lord, we failed You. We failed You. And as I say that, recognize this. God is gracious. That is why we are His followers in the first place. Because He has graciously redeemed us. But, we love Him. He loves us, and that causes us to love Him. And you don't want to disappoint the people you love. You don't want to disappoint this gracious God. And so this is huge. This is huge. And, and we'll see how this affects every area of our lives. I've got just a couple of practical ways that I want to point out to us as a church where I think there's room for us to grow. Where I think in our culture, there's certain problems, certain issues that really as Christians, as followers of Christ, we need to be very careful about how we live to, to see this mission advance and to see this go forward. <clears throat> and so here's what they are, a couple of areas. Number one, be intentional. We need to be intentional. This is especially true in our culture out here in the burbs. Um, isolation is a problem. If you think about it, we have our garage, we park our car in our garage, we get in in the morning, open the door, drive to work, come home, pull into the garage, shut the door, don't talk to our neighbors, don't need to, it's fine. Isolation is a problem. Or you go to Starbucks, everyone in the building has headphones in. It's like, I'm going to go read a book in a public place while ignoring everyone. That's why Starbucks exists, basically. Uh, it's a common problem, this isolation, this being cut off from other people. So, so what does this mean 
we see this problem, how do we deal with that and, and live in light of that as followers of Christ with a mission to make the gospel known? Two ways. First off, establish rhythms. What I mean by rhythm is, is a, a patterns, routines, recognizable routines. So, example, we've got a thousand different restaurants in the area. You can get a great variety of food, barbecue, and then Mexican, and then Italian. Or we could make a choice to, hopefully, Lord willing, further the gospel, to go to the same restaurant, the same time, week by week by week, to build relationships with the staff, with the other people there, in the hopes of sharing the gospel. So, so church, become regular somewhere. You know, go to Starbucks where people say, you want the usual? Like, that's a good sign. And Starbucks, go to Dunkin' Donuts and, and order the usual. Not Starbucks, they'll charge you twice as much for the same thing. But establish rhythms, be intentional. Another way this, this plays out, what about moving your grill to your front yard? <clears throat> I know it's crazy. <coughs> Excuse me. But what a way to combat this isolation. Move your grill to your front yard. Instead of going into your fenced-in backyard out in your nice suburban neighborhood where no one can see you because the fence is eight feet high, put your grill in the front yard, grill out some burgers, neighbors are walking by, invite them over, offer them a burger, start talking with them and strike up conversations. These are practical little ways that we can be intentional Two, here's the second part of this, create opportunities. We're doing all of this, in one sense, with an ulterior motive. We, we love people, we care for people, whether they ever come to Christ or not. We, we give our lives for the good of others. We love our neighbors as ourselves. But our ultimate goal is that every person we interact with would come to know the grace of God in Jesus. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing, something to be intentional about, something to prioritize. So be intentional about creating opportunities for the spread of the gospel. Number two, another area this all plays out. Invest eternally. So I said that the 10 minus isn't about money, and it's not ultimately. It's about faithfulness and stewardship and managing well but it does speak radically to how we use our money. We just saw Zacchaeus, this guy who was corrupt, cheater, filthy rich, encounters Jesus and becomes insanely generous, gives it all back, gives it all away. We see the same principle here. If, If we are living on mission for Christ, it radically dictates how we use our money. Here's, here's a, a crazy truth. This might blow some minds. Living for retirement is short-sighted. Okay? Just living for retirement is short-sighted. And here's what I mean by that. If we are in Christ, we are going to live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And so every day we have a choice. We can live for 40 years from now, or 20 years from now, or 10 years from now, or whenever you hit retirement age. We can live for 40 years from now, or we can live for 40 million years from now. And this is a principle we've seen all throughout Luke, is that we have this, this option. We can either invest in heavenly treasure, which cannot perish, which will never rust or fade away, or we can invest in earthly things that will all burn up, that will rust, that can be stolen. Luke again and again has emphasized the importance of money because of this. 
and, and this is actually from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so, the question when it comes to finances is this. We talk about financial goals. Well, to what end are we managing our money? Are we managing it for what the world wants, for, for a long, nice retirement? Or are we managing it for the eternal joy of ourselves and other people? That's, that's a very real question we all have to wrestle with as we make our budgets and get our paychecks. And this, this is radical and it affects every area of our lives. But this issue of money, this is a reality, guys. There's this, this circle. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That means what I give my money to, my heart is going to follow. If, I, if I'm investing in um, bear season tickets and spending mo- more money and more money, that's not a, a hit on you there, Courtney. <laughs> Courtney's family has bear season tickets. If I'm giving all sorts of money to this, my heart is going to be so wrapped up in the bears and their successes or more often their failures that that I'm, I'm not going to treasure Jesus like I should. That's, that's just a reality. But as we invest into Christ and his mission, our heart follows that. And we begin to treasure Christ more. This is a, a radical circle. So, a very important question. Do you treasure Christ? Right now, if, if we pulled out your checkbook, or your people don't use checkbooks very much anymore, we pulled up your bank statement online on the screen here, where would it say your heart lies based on what, where you're spending your money? It, it's either in Christ or it's, it's not. Like he's either financial priority number one or he's not. Um, but the good news is that this principle also applies in the other way. So if Christ isn't there now, as you intentionally begin to give money to the causes of Christ, your heart will follow that and your heart will begin to treasure Christ more. And so it's this beautiful principle where it's not that we are locked in where we're at right now, not treasuring Christ, money's wrapped up in things that are going to burn. No, it's as we intentionally give to Christ, our hearts follow that, and we begin to treasure Christ. And as we give to see the gospel go to the nations, we begin to care for the nations, people we don't know, thousands of miles away. We, our hearts can be wrapped up in these people's eternal salvation. It's a beautiful thing. What this has meant for Mindy and for me is that as, as we've come here, gotten married, started getting paychecks and things, we've really had to go through this process of what do we do with our money? Um, and we're still going through it. We, we were at a place like this, this isn't working. We need to adjust it more. And so what this means for us might look a little different than you. For us, you know, you could tithe, and then we've got this amount extra where, hey, I'm going to, instead of having $50 a month spending money, I'm just going to take $30 a month, and that's going to free up $20 I can invest in the nations instead of buying coffee or, or spending it on things that don't matter. What this might mean for you is that you start tithing. Money is hard. I, I work part-time for a church. I know that. Like, it's, it's, I'm not in it for the money. Money is tight but we intentionally have to decide where we invest it. Does God, is, does God take priority in what we do with our money? Or are we just hoping there's some leftover so we can throw it to Jesus at the tail end? Or, this might mean for you, maybe you're already tithing, maybe it means sitting down and looking at your budget and saying, what can we cut out to further the cause of Christ here and to the nation? 
maybe you don't need cable with all of the HBO and all of the stars and all that. Maybe you can just do basic cable and save yourself $50. I don't know. That's just a, an example. I don't have figures. But this is, is the truth, is that we need to begin to look at these things critically and say, Where, what are we treasuring? What are we giving ourselves to? Because, in closing here, what we see is that devoting ourselves to the cause of Christ leads to three things. Number one, our greatest satisfaction is we depend and rely on Him. There's this awesome quote. It's from a, a sermon of C.S. Lewis um, called The Weight of Glory. Some of you may have heard it. And this is what Lewis says. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Guys, for us, we are far too easily satisfied. Far too easily. It's, it's like this, real practical example from my own life. I drink a lot of coffee, okay? And I don't care whether it's good coffee or bad coffee. I'll drink anything. I'm not a coffee snob in any stretch. But we had a friend visit who brought me some coffee for, straight from Tanzania, Kilimanjaro Coffee, which is an awesome name, and it was awesome coffee. However, I didn't know that at first. I was drinking it. It was fine. I couldn't tell the difference. But then we had a party, <clears throat> and our neighbors made some coffee, and I think it was Folgers. And I, I drank a cup of the Folgers, and I was like, okay, like it's coffee. It's good. And then I drank a cup of this Tanzanian Kilimanjaro coffee, and in comparison, back to back, I was like, whoa, there's a difference. It's not all the same. It's similar to that, what Lewis is saying here. We are far too easily pleased. I, I, I was pleased with the Folgers. That was fine until I tasted of something better. In our lives, <clears throat> as we give ourselves to Christ's mission, all of a sudden we, we find that we aren't living for our new TV show to come back. We're not living for the next Bears game. We're not living for basketball season or for the next vacation. We're living to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. We are living a part of the greatest mission the earth has ever known. And, and so our appetites are sharpened. Our, the bar is raised in, in terms of satisfaction. We're not okay with just a ho-hum American Christian sort of life where we go to church on Sunday and live nice lives. No, we're not satisfied with that. We're, we're satisfied as we see unreached peoples come to know Jesus. That is what delights our hearts. So number, number one is that. We, are, we find our greatest satisfaction in this as we depend and rely on Jesus. Number two, we find others' eternal joy as they come to know and experience Him. Statistics. People group definition of that. People group means it's the largest group of people the gospel can spread in without encountering major barriers, major cultural barriers, language barriers, etc. Studies say that there's roughly 11,000 people groups in the world. It depends who you look at. There's some variation. 11,284 people groups, 6.8 billion people in the world today. Of these, 
6,596 are unreached people groups. 3.9 billion people. An unreached people group, that means there's less than 2% evangelical Christians in, in that people group, which means there's realistically probably not enough people. The church isn't big enough for, to self-propagate the gospel, to reach their own people group by themselves. That's what it means to be an unreached people group. So 6,596, 3.9 billion people, which means 3.9 billion people on the world right now are overwhelmingly likely to be born, to live, and to die without ever hearing the gospel. That is staggering. That is shocking. On top of that, almost 3,000 of these people groups are unengaged, which means there is no known effort to reach them with the gospel. That's 200-something million. No known effort to reach them with the gospel of Christ. So these, these statistics are staggering. What it means for us, guys, there is a lost and dying world out there, billions of billions of people who need to know this message. They need to meet this Savior. And we can get so caught up in soccer practice, in parks and rec, in the bears, that we turn a blind eye and we act like it's not even going on. That is a damning reality. That, that shows that there is something wrong in our hearts if this is true of us. With this information, with the charge of Christ on our lives to go and make disciples of all nations, if we don't respond, there is something seriously amiss. There's, it is something to be concerned about. But, what this also means, this, this message this, of being faithful to the mission of Christ, is that as we orient our lives around this, it will lead to Christ's ultimate glory as we give all we have and are to show His worth as our Savior King. Jesus, as He tells a story, a few days later is going to be crucified for sinful people. He is going to be ex executed wrongly on a cross, die, and then take His life back up as, as Lord and King, unquestioned, unrivaled. That is who is telling this story. That is who we worship as we sing these songs this morning. And as we give ourselves to this mission, to intentionally sacrificing to make Him known, we, we lift Jesus up as awesome. We lift Him up as King and as glorious and as worth sacrificing anything as long as we know Jesus more and others get to know Jesus. That's what happens as we do this mission. But note, He is our Savior King. Savior King. Jesus just said He came to seek and to save the lost. And that starts with us. And so as we are in this mission, as we, as we fail, as we don't prioritize Christ, His grace is enough. His grace is sufficient for our shortcomings. He, he loves us enough in our sin to die for us. His grace is sufficient for our shortcomings. And His power is sufficient for our success. This mission will be accomplished, and this is where we're going to close. There's a passage, and I think Johnny read it last week, but we're going to read it again because we need to hear it. Revelation 7, 9-12. through 12. Apostle John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fell on their faces before the throne, worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is a prophetic picture John is seeing of someday when people, when this mission will be accomplished, when people from every nation will be standing around the throne singing God's praises. And so as we give ourselves to this, we give ourselves to it with the knowledge that we cannot fail. This is a, a guaranteed mission. Jesus has got this thing rigged so that his church will succeed. Because, as he says in Matthew's version of this commission, he says, Lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. And he's the one with all authority and all power and all might. And so we do this knowing we cannot fail, knowing that it is for our greatest satisfaction, others' eternal joy, and Christ's ultimate glory. And that is well worth any sacrifice. That is well worth whatever it takes to be faithful to this mission. So let's give ourselves to it, guys. Let's live for that day when we see everyone around the throne singing God's praises. We're going to pray, and then we're going to take up communion in response to this. Jesus, help us to be faithful to your charge. When you come back, we don't want to stand before you and and say, sorry, Lord, we got sidetracked. We missed it. Isn't our sanctuary nice? We don't want that. Let that break our hearts. Jesus, thank you that you are the Savior and the King. That you died to redeem us that You've brought us to God. You've brought us to each other. You've united us. And You've empowered us so that we can take this Gospel to all nations. Lord, help us to start. Help us to take practical steps towards making our lives count for Your cause across the face of the earth. Jesus, we just proclaim that You are King. You are Lord. You will come back with the Kingdom, bringing it in full ushering in an age of perfection in the new heaven and the new earth. And Lord, we await the day when we can stand around with brothers and sisters speaking thousands of different tongues, thousands of different languages, all proclaiming the same thing, that You are worth it. Lord, we long for that day and we ask that You would bring it quickly and that You would give us the grace to give ourselves to this mission You have given us. Lord, we need Your help in this. We need Your Spirit to empower us in this. We need Your grace so that we can die to ourselves, that we can battle the the temptation to live as the world lives. Lord, help us to have eternal vision, to look long into eternity and to not be short-sighted. Help us to be faithful, Lord. You are worth it all, and we love You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.